episode of our religion praxis conversation series and today our guest is Nicholas Denisenko who is an eminent theological thinker whose work influenced a number of scholars working on Orthodox Christianity in Europe and North America and uh, the topic of our discussion will be the examination of the context under which Russian Orthodox Church and Ukrainian Orthodox Church are examining if how, when Orthodox Christianity shall recover, if at all, anyhow recover from an ongoing war in Ukraine, how shall we understand the position of the Russian Orthodox Church theologically, and what is the broader impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on Orthodoxy in North America and Europe? Today we're thrilled to host Nicholas Denisenko, who is an eminent theologian whose work influences armies of scholars working on Eastern Orthodoxy and Eastern Christianity, including myself. He has written several books and articles on liturgical theology and orthodoxy in Ukraine, including the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, A Century of Separation, and published in an IU Press in, in 2018. Uh, Denisenko writes and speaks on diverse topics and specializes in liturgical theology and Orthodox Christianity, as I said. His work has appeared in venues such as the Journal for the American Academy of Religion, Theological Studies, Studia Liturgica, Worship, and St. Vladimir's Theological Quarterly. Nikolas Denisenko won a very prestigious honorable mention with the um, Omelian Pritzak Book Prize in, in Ukrainian Studies from the Prestigious Academy. Association for Slavic, Eastern European, and Eurasian Studies. And we welcome you today. We look forward to hearing your opening remarks on our conversation titled A Rebirth of Orthodoxy, Moral and Epistemological Preliminaries. It is a real pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, um, especially during this uh, essential uh, moment in history where we're witnessing to so many changes occurring both on the political and on the ecclesial landscapes. Um, so I'll just begin with a brief overview that I think might be helpful for uh, our conversation today. Um, I wanna first talk a little bit about the so-called big picture in orthodoxy. Um, for those who aren't aware, um, if we only follow the media, it would appear that tensions between uh, what we consider to be the two giants and the orthodox uh, world, the ecumenical patriarchate of Constantinople and the patriarchate of Moscow, also known as the Russian Orthodox Church, that these tensions began in 2018 when Constantinople began to discuss uh, and really to leak the news that they were planning on uh, granting autocephaly to the Orthodox Church in Ukraine. But the truth is that these tensions have been simmering for a long time. They've really been simmering since the 1920s, and perhaps some scholars would challenge that and offer that they were simmering before that time. Um, 
in the 20th century, there was a debate that kind of gradually uh, developed on uh, who or how the ministry of primacy within the Orthodox world, which is certainly different from the way that it's exercised in the Catholic world, should be exercised. And uh, that debate really began to take shape in action, uh, especially as churches in particular nations wanted to, or there were movements for autocephaly or independence. And for those who don't know, autocephaly is a term that means complete self-governance without dependence upon any other mother church. Um, there are 15 autocephalous churches in the Orthodox Church worldwide, and um, there was a debate that still is not resolved on the mechanism that is to be used to grant autocephaly to these churches, one that um, really shifted the status quo in the big picture and global orthodoxy beginning in 2018 and 19. Now, I had mentioned that these tensions were simmering before. Um, one crucial, pivotal event was the 2016 Council in Crete. This was a pan-Orthodox council, and it was something that the Ecumenical Patriarchate of Constantinople had been wanting to do for a long time to resolve certain issues that had been kind of hanging in the balance and needed to be discussed among Orthodox. That council would have offered a very powerful voice had it been univocal. Um, but four churches refused to participate in the council. And one of those four churches was the Russian Orthodox Church. When the Russian Orthodox Church or the Moscow Patriarchate refused to participate in the council, it only exacerbated the tensions between these two giants and Orthodoxy. And of course, we know that in 2018 to 19, Constantinople's intervention in Ukraine, the creation of the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, really challenged that status quo to the point that the Moscow Patriarchate, the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, severed communion with the Patriarchate of Constantinople and also severed communion with churches that supported Constantinople's initiative. These include the Patriarchates of Alexandria, uh, the Church in Greece, and the Church in Cyprus. So this was an earthquake moment in global orthodoxy, one that really challenged the churches to respond in a certain way. And what we saw is that most of the sister churches, keeping in mind that there are a total of 15, offered cautious responses. And here I'll just share an anecdote of a discussion that I had with an archbishop who has expertise on these issues at the um, International Orthodox Theological Association meeting in Yash in 2019. He basically said, we're not going to take any sides. We're not going to take any sides because we are too small of a church to risk ruining our relationships with uh, both the Ecumenical Patriarchate and Moscow. So I want to emphasize that the sister churches to date have had mostly a cautious response. Um, they have offered statements that really don't necessarily take one side or another. There are some churches that have clearly taken sides, but there are some that seem to be waiting to see uh, how other churches are going to respond and how 
this situation might develop uh, in the future. Now, I want to say a few words about the Russian Orthodox Church in particular. Ever since uh, Putin authorized the invasion of Ukraine on February 24th of this year, one of the many issues that has been discussed and debated is the so-called Ruski Mir ideology or Russian world. The Ruski Mir ideology is based on speeches of Patriarch Kirill, primarily uh, with uh, some anchoring in earlier documents that essentially envisions an orthodox civilization that um, unites peoples, and particularly the peoples of Ukraine, uh, Russia, and Belarus. Um, there has been a lot of discussion, analysis, and debate on the degree to which this ideology uh, inflamed tensions that led to an escalation of violence on the part of the Russian Federation. But what I want to say is, uh, I think there's another angle or dimension that is underexplored. Um, and this relates to the larger question of, well, what is the Ruski Mir actually and what is its intent? Um, I think that if we imagine the reason for the creation and the articulation of this ideology, of this identity statement, is that in a certain sense, it is an attempt to uh, identify the church's new role in cooperation with the state in a new situation. So some might call it post-Soviet. Obviously, it's uh, drawing upon uh, Russian imperial sources, but it really isn't that unusual to create or recreate, repackage uh, a narrative that speaks to these issues, that attempts to articulate what that new identity is. And the way that I like to think about this is that we're having some insight into the psychological framework of the Russian Orthodox Church. The collapse of the Soviet Union was an epic event. Clearly, uh, Putin himself has referred to this as a tragedy, as a catastrophe, as something that should never have happened. And it is not unusual for religious leaders to try to articulate an identity that makes sense of who they are and what the mission of the church is in the aftermath of uh, some kind of a loss or a decline or a change. And we saw this, for example, as the Ottoman Empire gradually declined in the 19th and 20th centuries, Austro-Hungarian, Russian, and Soviet empires. And so what we see here is that both Russia and the Russian Orthodox Church are working together to try to create an ideology that uh, articulates very clearly what the role of Russia and what the role of the Russian Orthodox Church is in this post-Soviet space. And so when we think about this, it's not simply a matter of uh, an ideology that has been um, it has been uh, completely and totally condemned by uh, hundreds of Orthodox and non-Orthodox theologians. But in a certain sense, it's not that unusual for something like this to emerge. And it will be interesting to see of what comes of it, if it will be repackaged. Um, so I wanted to mention that as an important side note or footnote, if you will, to the significance of the Ruski Mir. 
Then I also want to say a few words about the Ukrainian churches in the war. So we know that Ukraine um, became a sovereign independent republic in 1991, and that this uh, establishment of sovereignty of a recognized republic really enabled the establishment and the stability of autocephalous structures such as the Ukrainian autocephalous church and the Ukrainian church of the Kievan patriarchate to exist and to remain in existence without uh, political annulment of these structures even though they were unrecognized by the other Orthodox churches in this time. The effect of the existence of these churches is that the hegemony, the power of the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine was challenged. And that challenge remained in place for um, over 20 years. And we saw this challenge with a steadfast resistance of church leaders to the dissemination, the public proclamation, what we might think of as the inauguration of the Ruski Mir in Ukraine by Patriarch Kirill in all of the churches, certainly the Ukrainian Greco-Catholic Church, the autocephalous churches, but even in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church under the Moscow Patriarchate, resisted this dissemination of the Ruski Mir and this resistance to the hegemony of the Russian church in Ukraine um, became more firmly anchored in 2014 uh, when the war actually started in Ukraine, when uh, the Kievan Patriarchate essentially became a church that was legitimate in the, from the perspective of millions of Ukrainian people even if it was still unrecognized by the other Orthodox churches. So this resistance in post-Soviet Ukraine essentially opened the door for a new structure to eventually emerge. And when this invasion occurred, and I think this is an absolutely crucial point for us to consider um, in 2014, at that time, there were harsh condemnations of the aggression of Putin and also of the support of the Russian regime of the Russian Orthodox Church. And I want to mention, for example, um, there was a lot of fanfare, uh, a lot of discussion of Metropolitan Onufri, who is the current leader of the Ukrainian Church under Moscow, who, uh, when he wrote the, his very first uh, letter of support, of solidarity with the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian Republic after Putin's invasion, um, referred to this as uh, another instance in modern times of uh, the battle between Cain and Abel and the murder of Abel by Cain. But it was Filaret, Patriarch Filaret, who was the leader of the Kievan Patriarchate, who wrote a much more elaborate letter that um, essentially opened the door for Ukrainians to name the enemy and to condemn the aggression in an encyclical letter that he sent at the end of 2014, where he essentially identified Putin as the new king. And these kinds of actions in this earlier seminal period of time um, hastened the pace of parish transfers um, this is even before the creation of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, from the uh, 
Moscow Patriarchate to the Kievan Patriarchate. Uh, now, it's also important to note that at this time, in this earlier seminal period uh, of the annexation of Crimea and the invasion in Donbass, that the Ukrainian church under Moscow decided to adopt a public neutral position, an anti-war position, on the basis of uh, the fact that they served all of the Ukrainian people, including people who were opposed to the Maidan revolution of dignity. So um, what we're seeing here moving on is that when the Orthodox Church of Ukraine was created in 2018 to 19, through Constantinople's direct intervention, that this was interpreted as an aggressive act by the Russian Orthodox Church, hence their uh, severance of communion with the churches that supported the creation of this church, but also the Russian Federation. I remember members of the media calling me, asking me to comment at the time on statements made by Peskov and Lavrov and Putin himself that hinted at military intervention to defend faithful of the Ukrainian church under Moscow at this time. So clearly in their own psychological mindset, uh, they were seeing the creation of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine as an aggressive act. And I think that what we're seeing today then is that this invasion, this terrible war that's costing uh, lives and uh, forcing uh, displaced persons and refugee crises throughout Europe and the rest of the world marks a transformation from the employment of soft power which was possible when the Russian Orthodox Church had hegemony in Ukraine to hard power, to using force to try to reestablish the previous status quo of uh, the Russian Church being the primary church in all of Ukraine. And so what we see now with the war is that there are variegated Ukrainian responses. So for example, um, again, there has been a lot of fanfare around the Ukrainian church under Moscow, directly appealing to Putin to stop the aggression, using this Cain theological motif, but also at the same time calling upon the Ukrainian people to pray, to repent, and to be careful about making too uh, radical of changes to church structures in the meantime, all of which suggest that um, they still are trying to maintain a more cautious approach. Whereas in the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, uh, there has been a strong emphasis on the war as a moment to seize, to proclaim a sort of a liberation theology where the victory of the Ukrainian armed forces over the Russian army would be akin to a resurrection of Ukraine and the inauguration of a new era. And so I'll conclude these remarks by just giving you a sense of what we're experiencing uh, here where I live in North America, I refer to it as echoes because we hear echoes of the kinds of themes that are being expressed and proclaimed overseas. Um, so there's strong condemnation of President Putin coming from the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of America, which is directly under the Patriarchate of Constantinople. And of course, the Ukrainian Church, Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the United States. Whereas, at least up until this point in the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, 
whereas a more cautious approach appeals for peace, prayers for peace, but a kind of an equivocation of a mentioning that um, while we have to consider the case presented by both sides. In my own church, in the Orthodox Church of America, um, they have taken a, a step towards a condemnation of Putin and a call for the uh, end of aggression. But in their statements, um, there is sort of like a preference for the church under that is led by Metropolitan Onufri because they mention him specifically when they ask for prayers for the church, um, as opposed to simply saying we're going to pray for all Ukrainians regardless of their church affiliation and their uh, religious affiliation. And so two last observations with looking forward to this discussion is uh, underneath all of this has been a very strong lay response the lay people are angered by this. They are calling for change uh, in Ukraine, outside of Ukraine. There have been dozens of petitions signed, letters sent, even um, protests organized. And that leads me to believe that we are having an earthquake moment in the world of orthodoxy, which will ultimately change the status quo that I began with regardless of any um, measure of caution that is adopted by church leaders. And then the second thing I want to mention sort of in conclusion to these opening remarks is that within all of the public statements that have been made by church leaders, there are confessional biases. And at least in my own estimation, this creates a theological problem. So for example, to say that, well, we pray for Metropolitan Onufri and for his flock and for all of the members of that church. Um, there are victims of war who belong to this church, to other churches, to no church, to other uh, religious organizations uh, and religious bodies. To me, that is a theological problem to show a sort of uh, preference for one church when the victims of war um, really represent the entire Ukrainian nation. So thank you for your attention to this um, opening remark. And now um, I'm looking forward to the rest of the discussion. Well, thank you very, very much. It was very interesting to, to listen to your uh, thoughts and very informative. So I wonder how, how, what will be your take on making sense, like a doctrinal sense of the theological, what seems to be a theological oxymoron, a war between Orthodox Christian states what problems does this war generate theologically? Yes, um, it generates a number of problems. Uh, first is that the Orthodox Church, um, if you look at the prayer tradition, um, is a church of peace. It's uh, constantly calling for peace. Um, some years ago, I gave a presentation on the meaning of the diaconate which led me to examine the liturgical texts. And I was amazed at the number of times that the church is called upon to pray for the advent, the coming of God's peace in our midst, the peace that, that Jesus Christ brings. Um, and so what we're seeing here with uh, sort of a, an official sanctioning of the war on the part of the Russian Orthodox Church is a contradiction, um, an attempt, or not an, necessarily an attempt, 
but I think um, a contradiction that uh, it simply cannot be erased, ignored, or reconciled uh, when on the one hand we're paying, praying not only for peace, but also for reconciliation, removal of passions, removal of lust and anger from our hearts. There are numerous petitions that call upon this, ask the people to pray for this, while at the same time saying that there is a metaphysical war being played out that necessitates the defense of the Russian Federation, of the people of Donbass, from this threat that is posed by the West. And we simply can't have both things existing at the same time because they contradict one another. Um, there has to be, you, you cannot call for peace while at the same time you're, you're calling for aggression and war. Um, and so in that sense, there has to be a much more um, engaged conversation about what we mean when we pray for peace, for the removal of the passions. Um, and I also think that, and I speak, speak as a liturgical theologian, uh, all of our ritual gestures speak to the importance of communion. We claim to not only be in our, share a fellowship with one another, but also with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And if this indeed is the fellowship that we share, you simply cannot say that we're establishing communion because communion is all about creating a community. You cannot create a community by force. It is uh, theologically absurd to create a community by force. Uh, the Christian tradition honors the freedom of human choice. And those are the two two of the issues that I would uh, consider to be necessary for further reflection and deliberation. Thank you very much. Um, and the next question will be more on the theological and ethical points, perhaps. What is the theological or ethical benchmark for a theological or religious restart of orthodoxy, if you will? Because we discussed in briefly how, how much this war damaged orthodox Christianity and how much it will influence, you know, again, a lot of um, assumptions about Orthodox Christianity and, uh, of course, association with nationalism and geopolitics are, are mentioned. I wonder if you can give our listeners a, a little bit of your reflection on what can be the standard, what can be the benchmark under which we can explore the spaces for restart. And I know that you will be writing a book about that, so I'm not going to be, it's a spoiler, uh, spoiler, uh, spoiler alert for your readers, of course, but just give us a kind of brief reflection, if I may ask that. Yes. Um, well, I think that there are two points here. One is, how does the church truly relate to the state? And it may very well be that the church's relation with the state is, is still very much a work in progress progress in the early stages um, following the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, we see, for example, in the Moscow Council of 1917 to 18, especially when you dig into some of the details of the documents, that the church is trying to find its place. It wants to have a stronger voice with the restoration of the patriarchate in the Russian Orthodox Church, and at least at the uh, operational, functional level that established that by assigning a patriarch and by allowing conciliarity. 
um, to exist. But there's also, um, when you have, so for example, in the 1920s, there was so much regime change in Ukraine that they were constantly changing the way that they were praying for the church and understanding how they related to the church, or excuse me, to the state. So I think there has to be more intentional conversation about how does the church understand the way that it relates to the state, to the world? And along with that is, um, and this is something that I've written about extensively some years ago, is the whole question of power in the church. Uh, we, we talk a lot in orthodoxy about synodality, conciliarity, to be sure. Um, we attempt to enflesh our notion of conciliarity when we have gatherings that make important decisions by including uh, lay representation to, to kind of show that the whole church is participating in the process. But it seems to me that some of these power structures remain largely unchanged. So consider this illustration for a moment. Orthodoxy is harshly critical of the Roman church or the Roman church's definition of the exercise of primacy and the office of Pope um, through extraordinary magisterium, a description of the Pope as universal pontiff. But yet it seems that our mechanisms in orthodoxy are so slow, at least, if non-existent, right? Um, that when you have a patriarch whose actions are contributing to the exacerbation of aggression and violence and the deepening of alienation, the escalation of anger and tension, that we don't really have a mechanism to quickly address that. And that is an indication to me that there's something structurally wrong with uh, the way that ministry is exercised in positions of power. So I would actually say that, that we have to begin with uh, how do we understand the exercise of ministry in the offices of bishop? And will we have a moment where we can be honest, uh, really truly examine ourselves with brutal honesty and say that um, there is something wrong and that some kind of change that would uh, result in, in, a, in a much better manifestation of conciliarity is really necessary. Those are the two areas that I think really need to, are, are most crucial in the crisis that we, we see unfolding before us. Thank you very much. And thanks uh, for uh, the questions which are now posted in the Q&A. And please keep on writing these questions and I'll be glad to, to voice them. So first question is, uh, can you elaborate on what Rocker is? But I'm, I'm sure you, you mentioned that. But uh, another more um, uh, less technical question is, does Orthodox Christianity have potential for peace building? And if yes, then in what capacity? Ah, yes, very good. So uh, I'll answer the first question quickly. The Rocor, I'm sorry about that. Um, that's... <laughs> It's, it stands, it, it's an acronym that stands for the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia. So if you study church history, um, the Russian Church abroad or the Russian Church outside of Russia um, severed communion with the Moscow Patriarchate in 1927 because of the declaration of loyalty made by Metropolitan Sergius to the Soviet state. 
And uh, the, this church, the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, known as kind of a bastion of conservatism and um, also for its fidelity to the monarchy, uh, the Romanov monarchy in particular, um, did reestablish communion with the uh, Moscow Patriarchate in 2007. And um, so their position now as a former critic of the Russian Orthodox Church, now in communion with the Russian Orthodox Church, is very much in the public spotlight. And can you remind me of the second question that was posed? Oh, so, so the second question was, does Orthodoxy have a potential for peace building? And if yes, then what capacity? Yes. Um, I believe that the church does have the capacity for peace building. Um, and I think that it has to be grassroots. It has to be organized by laity. Um, what often happens in the church is that the church waits for instruction from the hierarchy. And this goes back to this whole problem of conciliarity. The lay people are the church. They don't have to wait for the hierarchy to use the principles of peace building and reconciliation, which are theologically very powerful, to um, build peace, to reconstruct peace, to promote peace, to especially, especially to teach people how to engage in dialogue. And let me just say one theological thing that I learned from a Jesuit <laughs> about dialogue. And that is that if you look at the etymology of the word dialogue, uh, the word logos is part of the dialogue, which means that, that Christ is at the center of all theological dialogue. So when we have people who are alienated, bitterly separated at war, um, whether it's Russia and Ukraine or any number of Orthodox who are bickering about this or that issue, um, if we are going to find common ground, that common ground is in Christ. And um, I, I think that universities, theological schools, have the capacity to train lay people to uh, do the work that is necessary to teach people how to engage in dialogue, how to listen to one another, and how to do so. And here I'm going to cite uh, someone that you may know. Um, it's a group of people who also work in the field of anthropology, Tatyana Kalinachenko, who um, often says, do no harm. Do no harm. So to avoid harmful othering, that is a good starting point, a good basis for peace building, simply to learn how to do no harm. Um, so I think within orthodoxy, what often happens is that we have these theological foundations, but what we don't have is the practical knowledge to translate them from theological foundations to actual initiatives that um, can have a, a good effect on the ground. And universities, theological schools, maybe even local diocesan and parish initiatives would be the best place to begin to modulate these kinds of activities. Excellent. Um, another question from the audience is, if Russian Orthodox Church accepted the idea of Ukrainians, Ukrainianists as an identity, 
Why was it so hard to accept Ukraine as an independent country and Ukrainians as a people distinct and separate from Russians for the political elites? Yes. Um, well, that's a matter of debate, correct? So um, when we read the academic literature, um, one of the recent books that I have been reading uh, suggests that uh, Russia, while there was some respect for Ukrainian national sovereignty, um, that there, there always has been underlying, and, and here this brings us into the whole academic arena of origins, of the origins of nations and people, and the claims that Russia, Belarus, Ukraine make to uh, the principalities of Kiev and Rus from the medieval period. And that is the question that um, we've heard circulated in mainstream media of whether or not Ukrainians really are distinct from Russians. I think, I think that I would argue that um, most Russians see Ukrainians as being the same people who might be speaking a local dialect. This is not an accusation of all, I'm not accusing all Russians of, uh, you know, viewing Ukrainians as a colonized subaltern people in any way. But I do think that in the Russian mindset, that in the mainstream Russian mindset, that there is no real distinction, that they kind of see themselves as belonging to one big family. Um, and we certainly see this in historical markers um, the 1654 Treaty of Pereyaslav, one interpretation of this treaty is the reunification of peoples who had been separated who once belonged to Kiev and Rus. A very different historical interpretation of that event was that it was a, a simply a military treaty. And if you dig a little bit underneath the academic literature, we see that Ukrainians uh, vouched for the retention of their rights as an autonomous people within the Russian Empire. And I think the same thing comes into play with the church. Um, the Ukrainian church has its own distinct history, music, liturgical tradition, certainly with shared similarities with the Russian tradition. But until um, it, it was subsumed by the uh, Russian Orthodox Church in the year 1686, and especially the decades that followed, um, it was very much uh, uh, its own unique tradition, community of people with distinct rituals, with its own way of pronouncing church Slavonic language, with its own literature, its own theological um, tendencies or emphases, if you will. And um, so, if we look at the longer history, the argument that they were one and the same always and forever is simply unsustainable. And I think that what we see among both political and religious elites in Russia today is a conscious decision to uh, refer to Ukrainians as essentially being one nation with Russians, even if they are aware that Ukraine has its own distinct language, literature, church. And I certainly grant that there are uh, important figures within the Russian Orthodox Church that support independence and autocephaly. I suppose many of them are outside of Russia now, of the Ukrainian church. But this 
mindset, this narrative that this really is just one nation that is essentially differentiated by region, I believe continues to prevail in mainstream Russian thought. Thank you. Um, and I, I have a question myself. I'm wondering whether, I mean, I've been thinking about it through my own research in Ukraine and having field work in parishes of Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine and the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, so-called new, 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 newly created church. So there is an interesting grassroots response to the elite nationalism and the discourses of nationalism, again, on whether the idea of Russian world, whether it's civilizational idea or identity, had always interesting repercussions in different parishes in which I traveled and worked and observed liturgy. So my initial like macro-sociological question, if you will, was does Orthodox Christianity motivate and intensify Russian nationalism, or does Kremlin simply instrumentalize this religion to strengthen the Russian nationalism? Or maybe is it both, or maybe none? So how, how would you comment on, on that? Yes, that's a very important question. Um, well, you, you are the expert, and I've read um, some of the work that you did in the parishes, um, which, which I, I um, honor the work that you did is very important, certainly influencing my own thought. Uh, I want to make two comments about this. Uh, and the first is a direct response to your question. Uh, I, I have a book coming out sometime in 2023, which, which is on the liturgical year. And in my reading in the liturgical year, I examined uh, some of the hymns that are appointed for feasts such as the baptism of Rus in July, or the feast of uh, St. Vladimir or Volodymyr, however one wants to pronounce these names. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, and certainly in uh, seemingly unrelated but uh, pertinent examples, so for example, the feast of St. Gregory Palamas, these hymns have uh, expressed themes that are political. So for example, in the hymns of the feast of St. Gregory Palamas, there is a political uh, condemnation of Latins. You know, the Latins are the ones who are the heretics. There is a dispute among Latins and Greeks, and the Greeks are the ones who ended up being the defenders of the truth. And I think what we see sometimes in the expressions of these hymns is that the hymns uh, project the notion that the Grand Prince, for example, Vladimir, is the new Constantine. And then, you know, that becomes an idea that um, takes on added meaning when the Grand Prince is uh, depicted not only in hymns or in sermons, uh, but also in architecture and in public landmarks, such as the statue of St. Vladimir in Moscow, the construction of a church in Crimea, which is the baptismal place of St. Vladimir and all of the different monuments of Vladimir that are in cave, that in, in this sense, that adds to, it um, supports the apparatus of a framework so that when you go to church, you hear these ideas expressed, you see how the veneration, it plays out in the public procession of the church. Um, and then of course, most significantly, what comes from the omvon or the pulpit, how is this uh, declared 
by the local priest, by the diocesan bishop? Um, what understanding do they have of a civil, civilizational idea? So if you have, for example, an OCU parish, what is the legacy of St. Vladimir or the Orthodox Church of Ukraine? You know, is there a distinct claim made to Ukrainianness in the preaching that we hear from the Ambon in uh, a OCU church, as opposed to what we might hear in the Moscow Patriarchate, where Vladimir kind of becomes this uh, figure who unites everyone, all of these, you know, sort of like a symbol of pan-Slavism, to unite all of the Slavic peoples in this one great civilization. And so I think that the experience of what people hear, how they um, sense, how they uh, absorb ideas that are expressed in church, even down to the detail of venerating an icon, does have an effect on their own identity formation. Yet, on the other hand, um, there was an American politician who uh, once uh, created a cliche that I think applies to church and, and certainly an anthropologist like yourself would, a sociologist like yourself would be able to uh, affirm this, I think, and that's that all politics are local. And so therefore what happens at the church is most powerfully experienced at the local level. And it's through the work that people like you have done that we know that for some people, their experience of church is whatever uh, they know from their childhood up in the town that they live in, the village that they live in, the city, um, and that sometimes their experience of orthodoxy is very much affixed to the figure of the priest of the church, and that sometimes there's even a conscious desire to not be political, you know, to not affiliate with the OCU or the UOCMP, and to say that I, I, I am prosti pravoslavni, you know, just orthodox. Um, or on the other hand, uh, and I think you mentioned this in your book, if I'm not mistaken, that when there were soldiers who were in the parish um, who were fighting in the war in Donbass, that for their parents or grandparents or friends who remained in the parish, that that became an issue for them that um, drew them to a more concrete confessional uh, affiliation. So in this sense, I think all of these dynamics are at play. I mean, I'm very interested in identity formation and the contribution of liturgy to identity formation. But I also think that circumstances on the ground, what's happening in everyday life, uh, is probably the most powerful component that helps us uh, understand uh, the dynamics of, for example, why would a parish today that has been satisfied with remaining in the UOCMP suddenly hold a meeting to vote to move to the Orthodox Church of Ukraine? Circumstances on the ground will uh, ultimately um, guide or shape that decision. Uh, do you agree? I mean, I'm curious. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. I mean, the, the the importance of lived religion locally is incredible, and Ukraine is such a different. Uh, unlike many other Orthodox countries, it's very vibrant in terms of religious markets, and there's a great level of competition. And definitely, the local responses are not even 
similar in some so many ways uh, theologically and liturgically and level of practice religiosity they're so different from all other countries that i studied in orthodox world and again having having worked and they did that having done uh, work in serbia georgia or on russian orthodoxy and etc ukraine is pretty unique in orthodox world in, in in this case we have also the project ongoing now you know, global orthodoxy's response to the coronavirus so we have a bigger kind of coverage on how Bulgarian, Romanian, Serbian, Montenegrin, now Macedonian, uh, also the churches responded to crisis and kind of contested identities. And I completely agree that it's it's something local and the local is extremely important in how churches envision themselves even and on, on the level of national polity, if you will. And it reminds me of your uh, of your at work, I mean, beyond your work on liturgical theology, you also research the activities of the Ukrainian churches in times of the turbulence and chaos, and particularly examining how tensions between the church and political leaders illuminate the power vacuum in Ukraine. I wonder how can this war influence relationships between Kiev and churches in Ukraine? I mean, there is a lot of power dynamics in, in the Ukrainian churches and between the leaders and the very complicated religious market, as we said. Now it seems to be very unified, but also there are a lot of tension between different leaders and uh, some, some bishops uh, having certain interests. And what kind of story about power can can this war generate in terms of relationships between the religious leaders? Yes, yes, that's such an important question because I think we are actually at the pivotal moment right now. There are rumors circulating that there is going to be an important meeting of the Ukrainian church under Moscow to determine the future of the church. Um, and, you know, of course, many of us are observing quite attentively. And I think this is important for, for a couple of reasons. First, um, informational warfare matters. Uh, obviously, we lament the use of hard power, the use of violence and aggression, but informational warfare, it, it, it is relevant, it has an effect. And I think that in my own examination of the history, the modern history of the Ukrainian church, um, essentially what the, what the autocephalous body, the Orthodox church in Ukraine continues to attempt to overcome is a century's worth, now more than a century's worth of an identity that was created by an external, external uh, writers, uh, authors that essentially says that, that it, that, Ukrainian autocephaly is illegitimate, is nationalistic, and even on some occasions is fascist. And so I think that um, when there was hope, and certainly this was the, whatever political motivations um, guided the decisions of the Patriarchate of Constantinople, I do believe that they hoped that the Ukrainian church under Moscow would participate in the unification process with good faith. And that did not come to pass. At that point, the alienation among the supporters of autocephaly and the uh, uh, church under Moscow probably couldn't have been worse. The embitterment between those parties because of the more recent history, the uh, accusations going back and forth, for example, well, this church is uncanonical, um, this church is nationalistic and fascist. And then on the other hand, this church is Moscow's priests. This church is the fifth column of the Kremlin. 
So you have these, this kind of what, again, Kalinichenko would call harmful othering really taking place and real moment of bitterness. And so we saw that the attempt to intervene was only partially successful. And I say partially because there were three churches in Ukraine. Two of them, the autocephalous church and the Kievan Patriarchate, had also been at odds for 20-some years, and they successfully united. That was an important moment in the modern history of the Ukrainian church. Now, what I think is really interesting, in, in my view now, and this it doesn't take much internet um, sleuthing to gain a sense of this, is at the official level, at the official level, um, the public gestures are still uh, are still in that orbit, in that space of fierce informational warfare. So all one has to do is go to the website of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church under Moscow and see one news story after another complaining about um, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine illegally seizing temples, about the proposed bill of the Ukrainian parliament to make the Russian Orthodox Church illegal in Ukraine. This kind of media activity uh, seems to manifest um, the continued embitterment, separation, and alienation. And what will be required of the churches is to find a way to say that we're not going to do this anymore. Um, what's most important is to find and to grasp unity. So here's what I think is is absolutely fascinating, and I'll end with this. Well, that is that the Ukrainian people, at least this comment, I'll end with this. <laughs> the Ukrainian people have demonstrated incredible solidarity and unity. And as we know, it's 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 a very diverse population with strong political opinions, incredible solidarity and unity in response to the war. So in a certain sense, the Ukrainian people are leading the churches. The roles are reversed. Well, the churches follow the lead of the people and find a way, simply say, whatever the differences were in the past, we're going to put them aside for the sake of the safety, the dignity of these people who are being assaulted, that now we're going to put that aside and leave it aside for good. So I think we're at a pivotal moment. It will be very interesting to see um, the decision of, the, of the, this gathering that's supposed to take place of the Ukrainian church under Moscow, because one of the options that is supposedly on the table is a direct appeal to the church of Constantinople. And if that happens, that would be a complete turnaround. Because as we have seen, they have been harshly critical, condemning of Constantinople for the actions that they have taken because they have claimed that the OCU is in some way part of Constantinople's spirit of unionism. And that is, uh, that is a weaponization of a historical moment of the 15th century that um, shows that we'll go to any lengths to maintain the status quo. So to turn to Constantinople now uh, for the sake of the Ukrainian people would be uh, an enormous shift. Uh, I'm sure you'll be watching attentively as well to if anything comes of this gathering. 
Thank you very much. And we have a few more questions and uh, good to hear from uh, from senior colleagues. Professor Stephen Burghammer is here. So question is, is it correct that many priests in the Russian Orthodox Church are Ukrainians? And if so, how does that impact the current conflict? I think it impacts the current, the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> I don't know the exact percentages, but it's it's a fairly, I mean, uh, there wasn't enough shifting at the end of the, in this post-Soviet period to make the claim that um, there were not um, Ukrainians in the Russian Orthodox Church. I assume that this refers to the Russian Federation. Um, what I think and I don't have a lot of knowledge on this, but I think it affects it if there are family tensions. So if there's a, a Ukrainian who's in the Russian Federation who's serving as a, as a parish priest, um, how do their family entanglements with people that are in Ukraine who are telling them that um, we have missiles that are being bombed, hospitals, um, people who are sick who are being killed, um, rape and torture and atrocities being committed, how does that affect uh, the situation in Russia? Um, one of the weaknesses, of course, or obstacles is the lack of access to reliable information of how that's all playing out in Russia. That's a story that I think remains to be told, but I simply cannot imagine that, that it is not a relevant factor. It must be a relevant factor um, because those relations do exist. We do know through some savvy journalism that um, there have been arguments, disputes among uh, Ukrainians in Ukraine and their relatives in Russia uh, who are arguing about what is actually happening on the ground. Um, and it's simply unimaginable to me to be someone who has been an eyewitness to uh, an attack, hearing from a relative in a country, in another country, saying that, well, this is all propaganda. You know, this, this is not the Russian Federation doing this to you. So um, it, it must, the church is not um, insulated enough from society for that not to be a factor. It has to be. And I would probably add to this answer that if we're talking about the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, which is again part of the Russian Orthodox Church, legally speaking, because they are still in the canonical unity so far as we know, and we will see what will happen to this church. Then, then yes, absolutely. There are a lot of priests in the Russian Orthodox Church who are Ukrainians, and there, um, the, the, those twelve thousand parishes, which we which we count. Well, Tanya Kalinchenko might argue that it's nine thousand, but I mean, so far we know it's it's approximately ten thousand to twelve thousand parishes of the Moscow Patriarchate on the territory of Ukraine. They're overwhelmingly Ukrainians. And definitely, that some of those um, some of those informants with whom I worked throughout my own research have and who have never identified themselves strongly with Ukrainian identity are now virilized and fiercely nationalist to an unseen level before. So that kind of gets us to my last question: Is 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 perhaps the the Russian world the idea which Putin used to justify this war? Did Putin end the idea of Russian world by in Ukraine with this invasion, which he did in the name of protection of the Russian world in a way? Yes, um, the answer to that question is yes. And I think that the um, if it wasn't already dead, that the whole Ruski Mir Russian world idea was already in the process of dying rapidly or on life support, if you will, 
in Ukraine because of the resistance in all of the churches to the ideology, um, including the church under Moscow, um, despite the fact that when Metropolitan Anufri um, was elected as a successor to Metropolitan Volodymyr, um, that he took a more neutral uh, approach to the situation the way that it was playing out. But I certainly think that the Russian world idea is, is dead not only in Ukraine, but that it's going to die in the rest of the Orthodox world. Um, in a certain sense, the events as we have seen them play out have revealed just how dangerous the creation of a narrative that is based on nostalgia is uh, when it replaces the principles of Orthodox theology, which are all rooted in the inauguration of the kingdom of God and the worship of Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, so I think that it's going to die, not, it's certainly dead in Ukraine, but that it is going to die a uh, painful death in Orthodoxy as well. How it dies, I'm not uh, exactly sure, because again, those mechanisms, if they will be um, put into motion, we haven't seen them put into motion yet. You know, there's no, there's been no church action taken against Patriarch Kirill for his support of war. Um, it remains to be seen if there will be church action taken. But I also wanted to go back just for one moment, maybe for 30 seconds, to the comment you just made, very important comment about the um, strong patriotism and solidarity with Ukraine that we see in the Ukrainian church under Moscow. And I want to highlight the open letter that was signed by over 400 priests at risk of their own livelihood that called for a tribunal, a pan-Orthodox tribunal and a separation of the Ukrainian church under Moscow. That letter is now part, it will be studied, it will be debated, it will, it will be mentioned in conferences. That was an enormously powerful statement for people who risked everything uh, for the sake of defending the Ukrainian people and what we don't know but we could probably guess is how many clergy who did not sign that declaration, that open letter led by Father Andrei Pinchur, um, in truth supported the letter. Um, so all of these power dynamics and the way that they um, govern the church, we're going to see how the church is able to deal with them now, because we do know that there are bishops in the higher apparatus of the Ukrainian church under Moscow who, who seem to want to maintain the status quo. So the next few days will, well, they'll be, they will be historical. Well, if we will not um, spend more of your time since we had one amazing hour of listening to you and thank you very much, uh, Professor Denisenko and everybody who participated and uh, wrote questions. So have a lovely day and uh, may peace prevail. Thank you, it was wonderful to be with you today.